We're in Romans chapter 6, and if you remember, we are moving from a place of substitution in Romans 3 and 4 and 5 into a realm of what's known as identification. And I said this last week, I'll say it again. Anytime that I have ever dealt with an issue where someone has a problem going on in their lives, it has always been either a forgetfulness or an ignorance of their identification with Jesus Christ. Exactly who they are in Christ. So let's start it this way. If you have a pen, I'd ask you to get it out real quick. Hopefully a little place to mark. And I just want you to jot this down. Who are you? Write down your answer. Would you start with your name? Would you start with your occupation? Would you start with your military service? Would you start with who your mom and dad are? Would you start with your favorite hobby? Or what you've received awards for? How would you describe yourself? What about if we just looked at your emotional core and you use that to describe yourself? Can you imagine talking to a 15-year-old girl asking, who are you? And she started with her emotional core. Hopefully I didn't offend anybody. But it'd be all over the place, wouldn't it? Same with a boy. But what is it that defines you? How are you known? How do you perceive yourself? And would you say that there's a direct correlation between how you perceive yourself and how you live your life? I would say that there is no way to separate those things. Now, why is it important maybe to take a look at your list? Maybe you've just got it mentally lodged in right now. Where is God in your description? I mean, think about it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ then everything that is significant about you and that has power to see things accomplished in life are all things that either God has done for you, God has made possible for you, God has said about you, or that God has blessed you with. All of it. Anybody write down child of the king? Anybody write that down? Good, good. Some of you are saved. That's good. I'm just kidding. Some of us start with what we think are the most important things or how can I best relate to someone? What I think is interesting is that Paul doesn't take that approach. In Romans 6, Paul isn't worried about Anything to do with where we came from. He's worried about where our minds are presently. Now, we covered verses 1 through 7 last week. And I think that it's important for us to read over those so that we get it. Because Paul kept bringing this idea up. Don't you know? Knowing this. Do you not know? That kind of idea. So let's start in verse 1. Well, wait. 
Mitch, bring it back to, just, just look at the screen for a second. Take it back to Romans 5. And remember what we're trying to get here. The idea of forgiveness of sins is done deal. Jesus Christ has died for sins. The revolutionary truth we're coming along to is that Jesus Christ dying to sin is what makes it possible for grace excuse me, to reign in our life. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin, and remember sin, singular, the sin principle that resides in every one of us, some of us call it original sin, some of us call it the, the depraved nature, but the idea that when I want to commit sins, that those are simply the manifestations of something that is deeply, markedly wrong inside of me. So look, look what it says. But where sin increased here, praise God, grace increased all the more. Grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but you talk to anyone who does not know Jesus Christ is an unregenerate person. Not only are they dead in trespasses and sins, but sin and death reign in their life. They rule over their life. They are the master. They are the uh, shot caller, if you want to say it that way, of their life. Just as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here's what Paul is answering the question of. Are you saying that we need to continue to sin? Let's continue in that path of sin so that we will receive more grace. And look what he says here, starting in verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to, singular, sin, still live in it? Or do you not know? And the question is, do we know this? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, and again, that's not water baptism, that's spirit baptism that takes place at the moment that you respond to the gospel. When you believe, the spirit immerses you, identifies you with Jesus Christ automatically. Do you not know that all of us that have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? The first thing that Paul wants us to know that he's trying to capture our mind, to get truth in our noggin, is the fact that do you not know that you've been identified with Christ? You have an identification with him. That these things happen to you. Maybe not physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, when they took place with Christ, they took place with you. And so, do you not know that we've been baptized with him, immersed in him, unified with him, inseparable with him. Tethering is not even a close enough term. It is a hole that has been made. We talk about the idea of, and a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Think of that spiritually speaking with the Lord. If you are a believer in Christ, you are inseparable from him. Well, what did I do to get that? Sin. That's what we did. That's what made us candidates for grace. Now, I'm not going to ask, aren't you glad you sinned? But we would say, thank you, God, for grace, yes? So, our identification with him is paramount to knowledge. Now, get that, because we're going to develop it today. Look at the next one, verse 4. Therefore, 
We've been buried with him through baptism into death. Here's the reason. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What is the newness of life? It's the Christ life. That's what it is. Let's get the Christian life out of our vocabulary. The Christian life seems to be tethered with a lot of baggage about how we can be better people. Stop it. We become scorekeepers of sin, or whether we haven't sinned, and then we use that as supposedly pious ground in order to look down on other believers or assert our two cents in situations when we really don't know what's going on. The Christian life is a failing life. The Christ life is a victorious life. It's not about me getting better. It's about Christ living his life through me. So now watch how this develops. Verse 5. For if, and remember that could be translated since because it's a truth. He's giving us a truism here. For if we've become united, associated with him in a related experience is the idea of united here. With him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, here's the second thing we need to know here that our old self was crucified with him. Remember, one of the greatest things that God ever did was crucify us. There's so many people that run around saying, well, I just need to put, I just need to bring uh, death to self, death to self. I just need to put to death my flesh. Why are you trying to fight a battle that's already been won? It makes no sense. Jesus has already dealt with the flesh. He's already crucified the flesh. It's an already fact that if we think we have to engage in, we are going to fail and perpetuate more sin. Why is that? Because we're trying to better our self-identification instead of voluntarily humbling ourselves under our already identification in Christ. Does that make sense? It's almost to the point when you pull out your driver's license, you should see Jesus' face. Is everybody awake? Okay, making sure. So, second thing we need to know, I've been crucified. Have you been crucified? You don't sound certain. Have you been crucified? Here's what we do. Well, I know I should. Because we have this nervous tick thing going on when we're trying to fess up to ourselves. I know I should, but I could really do better in all those areas. Where's the focus? It's on your performance instead of your position. We're too worried about how we're doing and not worried enough about what Christ has done. Guys, when he said it was finished, it was a signature. Done. Done. D-U-N, done. Okay, making sure. Kentucky Education. Knowing this, our old self, our old man was crucified with him. For what purpose? Here it is. In order that our body, now notice this real quick. I feel like this is really important to check out. Remember, context determines meaning when you're interpreting. Okay? Notice that the body is not the flesh. 
I think that's important for us to recognize. In some situations, and we're going to see this today, when it speaks of the flesh, it is speaking of our body. But notice that the flesh, which is contrary to our spirit, and they war against one another to keep us from doing what we want to do for the glory of the Lord, and that's in Romans 7, and we'll get to that later, and that's Galatians 6 and that whole idea, okay? But anyway, the idea here, noticeably, is that the flesh is something different from the body, okay? So the old man has been crucified, And look at this, in order that the body of sin, singular, might be done away with, made powerless, annulled, the the, the power cord has been jerked out of the wall. That there is no source that fuels it any longer. This is what crucifixion has done. Remember, when Christ died, we died with him at that moment. If we don't think of ourselves that way, then get ready for a long ride in this life because it's going to be constant ups and downs, constant failures, constant defeats, constant tryings. But Lord, I want to be a good Christian. Why? The only thing we were ever good at was sinning. It is not up to us to be good. It is up to Christ to fulfill everything he said. And if God has taken the time to unfold it in the crucifixion and resurrection for you and I, then obviously he wants us to know it with some amount of clarity. So notice that it may be done away with, made powerless, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because that is our our lot is unsaved people. Four, there's your causal conjunction. He who has died is freed from sin. If you've died, you're freed from sin. So why do we toy with it? Two reasons. Number one, because we have flesh patterns. It's what we're used to doing. It's what we're used to returning to. Or we reason with ourselves. Of course, it doesn't harm anybody, that kind of idea. But I will also tell you is the idea that it's because we have not embraced, know who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. That we will subscribe all day long to the fact that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and we say, hallelujah, thank you for doing that. But for some reason, we want to stop there and not recognize that the cross has done its work on us as well. Verse 8, now if, and that could probably be translated since as well because he's telling you a truism, watch this. Now if we have died with Christ, here's a question, have you died with Christ? You still don't sound confident. I mean, you're like, whoa, this is completely unbelievable. I'm hoping that you are just gapingly blown away. Right? Sucking all the air out of the room. I hope that's the situation. Have you died with Christ? Yeah. You're in union with him, yes? You're unified with him. You're identified with him. So notice, verse 8, Now since we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also, what's the word? Live with him. Just as he died, we died to sin. Just as he lives, we live with him. Sound good? Now watch this, verse 9. Here's the third thing we need to know. Knowing that Christ 
having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is, what's that word? Master over him. What's a master do? Everybody see the slavery imagery? You maybe picture the idea of somebody with a whip beating somebody else because a job is not being done well enough. You see the idea of being the controlling force, or let's back it up a, a second, the authority in your life. See, when Jesus Christ was on the earth before he had died, sin had some sort of say. It had some sort of say, and then he died, and death was met. But then God said, you know what? Let's flip this entire thing around. Let's bring up resurrection. Let's show that death actually has no control, is not a master, has no authority, and we will flop it on its back and disqualify it from the conversation because Jesus Christ lives. Now, since we have died with him, we will also live with him. Here's the question. What kind of control does death have over your life? Are you sure? Do your decisions in life reflect that? Who ultimately holds your life in their hands? Think about this, guys. Because this is when we start having arguments about sovereignty and what sovereignty truly means. Not that God only picked out certain people to go to heaven. That's a damnable heresy. But sovereignty in the fact that God is the one who has the right to rule. He is the only creator God. All the rest of us are creations. See, Reuben's so excited about it, he's running the aisles. <laughs> this church is going to be charismatic before we know it. How many decisions do we make in our lives that are reflective upon a fear of death? Well, we're not to be careless. Nobody said be ignorant about the situation. I'm asking if our perspective from our foundation is correct. Let me show you why this matters. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. You know what that means? It's a decisive event. That when that took place, there was nothing else that needed to be done. And anything else that would possibly be added to it will actually diminish the value of it. Anybody ever tried to heap dirt on a diamond ring? Nobody? Of course not. Why? Because you're covering up what really matters. Because you're taking that which is valuable and you're skewing it. Other people couldn't enjoy it. We make it less. And all of a sudden, we talk about this idea of the supremacy of Christ in all things. And then we start to walk through life and we recognize, actually, he's not Lord over all things. Now, does that start by us needing to be more obedient and do better and try harder and all these things? No. It starts with the mind needing renewal from the Scriptures. 
Either God told you the truth in his word or he didn't. But don't sit on a fence and say parts are and parts aren't. The Bible is not a buffet. You cannot take what you want to take and leave what you don't want. So now why does this matter? And why does this situation of identifying with him, death, burial, and resurrection for us personally matter? Let me show you some things of why it would matter. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. And I don't want to do a huge unfolding of Ephesians 6. We're saving that for later. But I do want to point out a common denominator that keeps blowing itself up forward for us to understand here. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 10. Now, if you're familiar with this, you're familiar with this idea of being putting on the believer's armor. Yes, but no. The beautiful thing about Ephesians is Ephesians is written on a corporate level. Meaning that it's an all-inclusive of the church, every believer in Christ. This is what makes it so relatable. Is because Paul's not writing to one individual. He's writing to a collective of brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's encouraging them in that way. And so this is a collective mindset that the church has to have. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in where? The Lord and in the strength of your might. Is that what it says? His might. Notice how much we have to do with this. Everybody see where the direction and thinking goes. Yes? Now watch. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of who? There they are. Anybody know where schemes take place? Right here. Because all he's trying to get us to do is think just a degree off of truth. Notice it doesn't have to be one big massive lie. Well, that's a big one. Who in the world would believe that? Satan's smarter than that. So he gives you a little one. And if he can hook you and you entertain it, here, fish, fish, fish. I would hate to think that we're called to be fishers of men and we're the ones getting fished. Look what it says here. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Now flesh, either we could say body, the things of this material life, is not where the battle lies, or we could also say from the perspective of the idea of how we know that that Paul commonly talks about flesh, not all the time, but commonly, is the idea that thinking somehow the answer is going to come from what we are able to muster within our sinful self is not going to be a solution to the problem we're going to deal with in the warfare. Now here's the thing. I'm going to go ahead and let you know this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in the midst of spiritual war. Every day. Every day. It does not cease. It does not stop. And you either live in active engagement of it or you live in passive compliance to it. It's not one or the other. There's never a, I just need a break. The only way to get a break is told to us in James. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. That's it. And that's when you get your reprieve of joy. But I guarantee you, the enemy is looking for an opportunity to set the bear trap and to invite you to come see what's inside. 
One foundational element we have got to understand, mentally speaking, is my flesh, my perspective, my reasoning, everything that I would try to bring to the table, my logic, my rationale, all of these things are not going to do diddly squat in order to get me through this trying situation of the schemes of Satan. Now watch what happens, how we deal with it. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know what that is? Demons. Different rankings of demons. Spiritual forces that are unseen, that want to do nothing but jack up your day. Jack up your fellowship with the Lord, mess you up, get you to sin. Everybody ever thought about how Satan works? That ain't going to hurt you. You know you want it. There's no harm in it. No one will know. Keep it to yourself. And then as soon as you do it, what's he say? Can't believe you did that. How can you believe you're a child of God? Well, don't you know if you were truly saved, you never would have done something like that. It's amazing he goes from enticer to accuser like that. Now watch how this moves. Our struggle is against celestial situations. And so I don't know about you, but we need a supernatural answer. Now watch where he goes. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Every piece matters is what he's saying. Here's the reason. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Resist. Why would you need to resist? Because as soon as your flesh gets involved, fishing starts to happen. Resist that hook. Resist that bait. Resist that opportunity to finally stand up and get your point across and tell that person exactly what you think of them. Did that ever work? No. And it didn't do anything for our witness either. So that you may resist in the evil day. Watch this. And having done everything, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Anybody think that Paul wants us to be able to stand in this situation? He's brought it up four times. Stand firm, therefore, watch this, having girded your loins with the truth. That was the idea that when someone needed to run, they would pick up their robe and they would tie it off so they could actually be agile and mobile in moving places quickly. What are you supposed to gird yourself up with? The truth. Okay, that sounds pretty general. But it sounds good. I like it. I'm holding it in my hand. I'm a fan. That's how we need to deal with it. It's got to be that. Does everybody recognize that your situation in the spiritual realm is never a power struggle? It's always a truth struggle. It's always what we're choosing either to believe or not believe about a situation. Or let me back it up to familiar language from foundational framework. We either operate our lives in belief or unbelief depending on whatever situation is in front of us. But it all starts with whether or not we're convinced of something. So if that's the case, and this is how we're going to engage the enemy, you start with the truth. It's a truth struggle. It's never a power struggle. I bind you, Satan, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. No. Nobody gave you that power. You can't do that. Satan's already defeated. Why are you playing in the darkness? Get in the light. Don't mess around with that stuff. 
That's one way that he pulls us in, thinking that somehow we've got some sort of proclamation over him. What? I don't need to fight him. Jesus already whipped him. So don't engage it in that way. It's foolishness. Look what he says here. Having girded your loins with the truth, number two, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Not living rightly. Otherwise, that would be based on my performance of how well I do, of whether or not it's going to work. Where do we know about the word righteousness? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28, right? We have been justified freely by His grace. What is justification? Declared righteous by God. Well, if that's the idea that I've got to engage this situation with righteousness, notice it's not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness that has been given to me. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Where's the breastplate go? Hint, 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 breastplate. Right here. Covers you up. Full frontal contact. What needs to cover you? My standing in Christ. This is where I am, in a position of righteousness. Nothing can take that away from me. And this is where we get all the doubts about whether or not conversion was true. Don't listen to all that junk. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the, with the work of Christ. We simply are responding in belief to the gospel message. You believe, you have eternal life. John could not be clear. So the idea that I'm covering my chest with righteousness, look what it says after that. It says here, verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let me ask you a question. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ a gospel of peace? Yes. So what's it say needs to be covering our feet? The death and resurrection of Christ because it's a gospel of peace. Guys, my answers aren't hard. They're right here in the text. Paul's already given you the answer key, man. He has. So notice, not only does my chest need to be covered with truth, not only am I going to be rooted in truth how I'm going to deal with this situation, but my feet are going to be covered with the gospel that brings peace to people. Now, move on. He's not done yet. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, or you can also call that belief. Believing it. What's a shield do? Well, let's see right? Taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I picture Lord of the Rings and these nasty, funky creatures coming after Legolas. No! And what's he do? He tries to shoot back. Your shield of faith. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? How about the next one? Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. What does the helmet cover? Your mind, your head. What is salvation? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only to save you from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin and eventually from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Do I need to know all that? Yes, you do. Why is that? Because it needs to cover your mind. Not only that, look, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice this is the first offensive 
weapon. Everybody see that word of God. Everybody see that word, word? That's not logos, that's rhema. R-H-E-M-A. It means the spoken word of God. It means you're verbalizing truth through your vocal cords and out your mouth. That is the sword. How does that happen? Word of Christ dwells richly in you. Guess what comes out? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That sounds weird. Maybe it's because we're not living it enough. Maybe because it hasn't taken root in us and therefore it's not a product of how we deal with conflict. How about the next part here? Look what it says. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now what is that? In accordance with the Word of God. In accordance with the sword of the Spirit. Knowing God's Word, praying God's Word. Two offensive weapons here. The spoken Word of God rooted in truth, and also praying forth God's Word as an offensive weapon. Now, pause for just a second. Does everybody notice that the whole idea of my identification with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection resonates through the spiritual warfare? That I need to have some sort of understanding of what took place in the gospel account and how my identity has changed because of what Jesus Christ has done in order for me to be able to stand in this situation. You know the place we get hit first is when we put the shield of faith down and we start taking a couple to the chest and start wearing away at us because we stopped believing what God says is true of us. Where does all this happen? In the mind. In the mind. So therefore, we need to know we're identified. We need to know that we've died to sin. We need to know we've been crucified with Him. We need to know that we've been raised with Him. That we've been resurrected with Him. We need to know these things. I'm having a good time. Let's try another one. 2 Corinthians 10. This is a short one. We can squeeze it in. We might squeeze in another one. 2 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what we just heard Paul say in Ephesians 6, does it not? And notice what he says, though we walk in the flesh, though I have this flesh vehicle that is hanging on my bones of which I am going around in the world, that's not where the war is. Isn't that exactly how we want to do it? Let me ask you a question. How many of you this week have had somebody drive bad around you to where you wanted to respond? Okay. Now, did you want to respond with your body? Or did you want to respond with who you are in Christ? We wanted to respond with some of the most creative sign language you've ever seen on the face of the earth, right? But notice, that's a response in the flesh. Everybody see that? Everybody see how automatic it is? Everybody see how it gets a hold of the emotions and wants to just propel you forward? That that is somehow the answer to your situation? Though we walk around in the flesh, that's not where the war is. How about this? We're trying to stay away from overeating. So we try to reason with ourselves about reason why we shouldn't have that. We're trying to keep away from pornography. And so we're having to reason in ourselves about why that's not a good thing. 
And what we ultimately find is things like fleshly urges find their place of prominence in our life. They exercise their mastery over us. Could it be because we've tried to fight that war in ourselves? It's the wrong perspective. It's the wrong starting point. So look what Paul says here. Verse 4. For the weapons, good word, the weapons. It's actually the same word that is translated members in our memory verse, the members of our body. Our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. You know what that means? Having their source fueled by God. It originates in Him. Notice it's not my power. It's not my will power. It's not my mind power. It's none of that power that originates in myself. It has a nuclear core of divinity that pours forward in how I successfully engage the battle. It all depends on how you start. So notice what he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely power, powerful for the destruction of, and everybody see the word fortresses? It can mean that. I don't like it. Because notice it's not saying, I have this divine power, and all of a sudden walls are coming down in people's businesses. That's not what we're dealing with, is it? No. You don't just show up on your front lawn and I have divine power and your house caves over. That's not how it happens. But notice because he's speaking metaphorically, good word that it can also be translated as strongholds. Strongholds. Anybody have strongholds in their translation? Excellent. If it's NIV, we'll forgive you. But stronghold. Gosh, you guys need to laugh, man. Lighten up. Strongholds. You know what that could also be understood as? The bondage of sin on your life. The fact because I'm not living according to my identity where I am dead to sin and I am alive to Christ and I'm perfectly identified with him and therefore everything I need to be and handle this sinful situation in my life originates in him and what he says about me first up here. When we don't approach it that way, you have a stronghold on your hands. You have it gripping you and holding on to you and you just can't seem to get rid of it. Guess what? The divine power that God uses to fight the battle through you since it originates in him actually has the ability to demolish these things. I've tried every program. Have you tried Jesus and what he says about you? I've tried every fad. I've spent tons of money on these things. Have you tried what Jesus Christ says is the truth about who you really are? Because I guarantee you, if you grew up with a skewed beginning, if you grew up with a father who was barbaric and domineering or neglectful, if you grew up with a mother that always downplayed you, talked down to you, wanted things to be better for you and just couldn't understand why you couldn't get your act together and you were constantly shamed and slandered and these things created patterns of thinking in your mind. In fact, they call it cognitive behavior is what psychologists call it. We call it flesh patterns. Psychology, theology. There's not too much difference between the two. We just handle it divinely. We don't prescribe medicine for things. When these things take root and you think of yourself as a certain type of person and it dictates because what you've done or what has happened to you and how you live life 
You find yourself under a stronghold. And since you consider yourself helpless and I'll never get over it or I just need to think about other things or whatever means of subterfuge we try to use to avoid the problem, we actually end up finding ourselves denying the power that already is available to us. God's power can demolish strongholds. Do you believe that? Like, man, you're talking all weird. Paul didn't think so. Look at verse 5. We are destroying speculations. Anybody know what that word speculations means? Thoughts? Reasonings? How we just kind of reason ourselves out of things and we kind of dismiss it? flippantly so it doesn't have to have any sort of bearing on our lives because if it's true then we've actually got to do something about it or we'll live hypocritically and if we can't respond to the way that God has told us to respond which is get completely out of the way and affirm everything that he's already done and we're going to continue on in hypocrisy we're going to get away from the church in order to try to quell our conscience We're going to get away from the word of God in order for him to stop telling us what's right about this just let me do it God I don't know about you, I've done things on my own long enough, and I'm still getting the great successful award-winning results that I've always gotten. And it's heartache, and it's travesty, and it's lies, and it's brokenness, and it's failure. And I don't know about you, but I get tired of sin beating me in the face. So how do you get above that? How do you deal with it? It's got to start here. Verse 5, we're destroying speculations, thoughts, and reasonings. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of who? Notice, the knowledge of God, knowing about Him. Notice it's in the mind. How about the next one? And we are taking every, what's the word? Thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Dream with me for a second. If you're someone with a stronghold, you're someone with a sin issue that constantly plagues your life, whether it be a poor self-image, whether it be pornography, overeating, compulsive spending, I don't know what it is, but think about that thing that you're like, gosh, I just wish it would stop. I wish it would go away. Can you imagine the idea of Jesus Christ bringing that thing to its knees? Saying, put your hands behind your head. And clapping those cuffs on there and tucking it behind its back and walking it away. Incarcerated. Gone. Out of the picture. Do you realize that's possible now? Why is that? Because when people want to bring up reasonings and lofty thinking against the knowledge of God. Instead, when those thoughts are introduced into our minds, we take them captive unto, notice the standard, Christ. There's where the power lies. Now let me ask you this question, and if you say no, you're a liar. I'll go ahead and tell you. Have you ever had a thought so captivate your mind, so pop in there, that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just thought that. (laughs) I hear Jamie Craig giggling in the back. 
I'm a child of God. How in the world could something like that be brought? You ever felt like that? Let me ask you the question. Were those the thoughts that you wanted to be thinking about that subject? We probably all say no. Why do you think they came from you? You sure it wasn't a fiery dart of the arrow, a fiery arrow of the enemy being launched into our mind to try to get us off? Just a sliver, just a sliver. So it begin to take us down a path of unbelief. No. We take that thought, we recognize it did not come from me. I did not want to think that whatsoever. And we bring it to the truth and we deal with it. Everybody see that? Now that requires we need to know God's word, but we also don't need to discount how important it is that Jesus has died for sins and two sins and then is victorious over death and is raised from the grave. And oh, by the way, he brought us with him through the whole thing. And now all that is true of him is all that is true of you and all that is true of me. Hallelujah. How great is that? We don't have Sunday school today, do we? Let's turn to Colossians. <laughs> Some of you said no. I saw it. Some of you said no, and then your eyebrows went up and you thought, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Colossians 2. I want to give you these things to dwell on, to think on about this, to recognize how important it is to be affirming the truth in your mind. Because when we go back to Romans 6, you're going to see why it matters. Look at Colossians 2. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Anybody know where that's come from? Some of your translations might say, make sure that nobody cheats you. Is the idea. Now, how would somebody cheat us? Well, look what it says here. Through what? Philosophy. Everybody know what the word philosophy means? Phileo, love. Sophia, wisdom. Wisdom lovers. That should be a good thing, right? Everybody wants to be smart. Everybody wants to be wise. I thought Proverbs was written by the smartest guy that ever lived. Yeah, it was. But there's something about being obsessive and saying that for some reason it trumps over what God has said in his word. That's how people get cheated, led astray, by philosophy, by these ideas that you don't need God in order to make this work. The world's got a better way. Anybody know who the God of this present age is? Take that to heart. Notice it says here, through philosophy and empty deception or vain deception, according to the traditions of men, this is the way that we've always done it. According to the elementary principles of the world. And here's what's interesting about that word, elementary principles. It's the idea of basic rudiment action. It's the Greek word stokia. And what actually pertains to it in the book of Colossians is it seems like they were dealing with a lot of Jewish mysticism that highly related the, was related to the idea of what we commonly know now as the Eastern mindset of karma. I do something bad, and so therefore I'm going to get something bad in return. But if I just do good things to people, then therefore I will get good things in return. That's also known as work salvation. There's no grace in karma. So make sure that nobody's 
taking your mind captive by this situation either. Look at verse 9. For in him, I'm sorry, back up. According to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to what? Christ. Does everybody see how philosophy and vain thinking and, and that whole thing is set on one side? And Christ is set all by himself on another side. Does everybody see that? These are two warring thought processes of what is true, what is real, who you really are, and how you think and operate accordingly out of that situation. Look here, verse 9, here's your causal conjunction. Reason number one, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's the number one reason why you should side with Christ in this decision making. He is deity incarnate. Number two, verse 10, and in him you've been made what? You've been made what? Say it. Complete. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are complete in Christ? Do you know what it means to be complete? You lack nothing. That doesn't mean like guys, when you're not looking at the instructions and you put that grill together and you want to grill something up and you turn around and there are parts all over the floor. That's not our Christian life. All parts are accounted for. All parts are where they need to be. All parts are fully and extraordinarily functional. That's what it means to be complete in location, Christ. How about the third reason here? Look at this as well. And he is the head over all rule and authority. You know what that is? Demonic powers. Celestial beings. Rankings of demons and angels. He's the head over all of it. All of them are ultimately answerable to him. He can make any decision whatsoever and they have to obey. There's a third good reason. Number four, and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of yourself, by dealing with your own problems, by getting your act together, by trying harder, no, by the circumcision of who? Christ. Notice there's where the action took, there's where the power is. It's in him. It's Christ in him crucified, Christ in him raised, me perfectly identified with Christ. There's where the power is. Now, moving on. Notice he says, having been buried with him in baptism, spirit baptism, and in which you were also raised up with him, there's your resurrection, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Everybody see the similarity in Romans 6 language, yes? Everybody see how this all connects together and what we are currently affirming about who we really are because who we really are is who God says that we are in Christ. Now, turn back to Romans 6, and let's look at this one verse. And by the way, that was my introduction. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just joking. Romans 6, verse 11. Knowing these things, dealing with the mind in this way, having this affirm that I am dead to sin, I've been crucified with Christ, I'm identified with him perfectly. I am alive forevermore for him to live his 
life divinely powerful through me and to deal with these strongholds when he is my starting point, when I look for him to be the difference in the situation. Look what it says. Even so, consider. Everybody see that word consider? It's a faithful translation of the word, but I love the King James word. Reckon. Reckon it. That's not, I reckon they'll come over later. That's how we talk about it in Kentucky. Reckon means because the fact of the matter is a certain reality. You embracing it and living in the light of it is paramount. Now, why is this important? Because this word reckon right here is the first time in the book of Romans that Paul has asked his audience to do anything. He hasn't asked them to do a thing until this moment. So it's obviously very important. Even so, consider, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you think of yourself like this? Or let's say it this way. If the facts before were things that we needed to know, does the heart... Embrace them with conviction. Now, I understand. In the New Testament, when you're dealing with heart, it often means the idea of mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's a difference between having information sitting on your brain, and now you are looking to move forward in light of that information. Guys, the next time that pornography comes knocking at your door, how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to meet temptation in the train track of Adam? Or are you going to meet temptation on the train track of Christ? Because in order to get us from this track to this track, we died, we were buried, and we were raised and set on this new track. How are you going to deal with that? Ladies, next time you're tempted to gossip about something, you're stereotyping. No, I'm not. Next time there's a tendency to complain, or talk about somebody else. How are you going to approach that? Are you going to take that thought, that temptation, captive unto Christ? Are you going to say, because Jesus died for this, I don't have to participate in it. I don't have to fall prey to this situation. That's what the old me would have done in a heartbeat. But that's not who I am. Get that. That's not who you are anymore. As long as we will continue to think of ourselves the way that we were, we will continue to get the same results out of life, believer or not. But if I recognize that any temptation that is put before me has been nailed to the cross, just like I have, that's what crucifixion is, yes? And all of a sudden, I recognize that there is a power to deal with temptation I never knew existed before. Why? Because it was never in me. It's rooted in my identity of who I am in Christ. This is what makes Romans 6 such powerful, foundational, life-changing truth. Paul wasn't telling us all this stuff for fluffies and bunnies in 3, 4, and 5 just to make us bored 
He's unfolding great powerful truths that have taken place because when we engage the battle, they're the very places that we stand in order to move forward because it's everything that God has done. You with me? Nobody fell asleep. Let me say this, guys. If you don't recognize the significance of this, if this isn't getting your button, pushing your button right now, pray about it. Go over these passages again. Recognize how important it is to have this lodged in the mind so that it will take rooted conviction in the heart. And you're looking at life going, it's almost insane that I would ever live my life in that way again because of what I understand about who I am. This is a reason why we put these bookmarks out on the, on the seats again. It's not because we know you got more than one book at home. It's because we understand that, number one, I don't have this memorized. You probably don't have this memorized. And I don't know about you, but I need to know this every day about myself. Every day. Every day. I need to know that I'm God's child. I need to know that I'm Christ's friend. I need to know that I'm justified. Well, don't you already know those things? You're a pastor. No, I'm an idiot. I need to be reminded of these things daily. Daily. Hourly. Moment by moment. Only what God says about me is true. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the wonderful truths of who we are in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that it's all of Him that it is none of us. I'm sure that the enemy right now is wanting to creep in and tell us it's not true. Don't believe it. It'll just fail you like all the other things that you've tried in order to get over sin problems, strongholds in our lives. And it's not. All of those other things were rooted in lies. God's word is true. The Lord prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, whatever bits of unbelief that would want to try to attach itself to us now, let's recognize that for what it is. A lie from the enemy that wants to keep us powerless that wants to keep us bound, that wants to keep us desperate and defeated. No longer. No longer. Father, may we reckon ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.